Today we are starting a new series called Prepare the Way for the Lord. We're going to cover the first few chapters of three of the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. We're excluding Mark, not because we dislike Mark, but because he starts his Gospel when Jesus is an adult. And so we're going to, he doesn't really have an origin story, so we're going to focus on the ones that do talk about Jesus' origins. Now, the importance of preparing the way for the Lord, this series is, is based on this fact. Before we ever see what Jesus does, before we ever hear what he says, before we ever read about how he dies or how he rises again, we are told things, facts about who he is. Before his deeds, his miracles, his sacrifice, he is a very important someone coming into our world. The authors of the Gospels tell us about titles that apply to him. His family of origin, predictions about him made before his arrival. Apparently, Jesus was so momentous, so important, such a big deal, that the world needed to be prepared for him. If the president comes to town, the town makes preparations. We block off roads, we increase security, we coordinate with the residents. And it's clear that God prepared for Jesus coming to town. He created a long runway for Jesus to land. And if they, 2,000 years ago, needed to be prepared for Jesus, so do we. I want this series to prepare us. The New Testament is very strange to us because it begins with a lot of names. Carrie, I don't know if this clicker is going to work, uh, so if you could help me out with the slides, thank you so much. This is a very long list of names that you may be familiar with and you may not. Uh, there are some that you may know about, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may know about David or even Perez or Zerah. You know, may know about some of the king's names, but these are a lot of names, and even the best Old Testament scholars may not know a ton about these names. And for a lot of Christians, it's passages like this that convince us we can't ever read the Bible and understand it, right? And you're right to be confused. This passage doesn't hand us an easy meaning on a silver platter. I think the problem is we often assume if I read the Bible, I will quickly figure out an interpretation of it that helps me. But God doesn't promise any such thing to us. Reading scripture takes effort, it takes time and patience. So I want to walk you through what I do when I read a passage like this, and I want us to find out who Jesus is. Okay? So let's start at this very first verse. If you have a Bible, you probably read the English word genealogy. But the Greek word that's translated there is Genesis. And Genesis means origin. It means beginning. It means the event that kicks things off. And there's another book in the Bible with this name. Huge spoiler alert. It's the very first one. Okay? The first book in the Bible starts off talking about how God created the heavens and the earth. And in the New Testament, we begin a new Genesis. A new chapter in the story which begins with Jesus. And he is given a title. It's the, the word right after it. Let's say it out on one, two, three. The Messiah. Okay? Jesus is called the Messiah. Now, we get uh, the word Christ from Christos, which is the translation of that Hebrew word, Meshiach. And here's something so important that's just kind of an easy thing to miss. 
Christ is not Jesus' last name. Simon never went up to Jesus and said, hey, Mr. Christ, I want to have a conversation with you. Christ is a title. It's his position. It means Messiah. And all of the Jews were waiting for this Messiah. They were ready for a new beginning, a new start, and they were waiting for an anointed one, a king. Now, this king had to be a son of David. And that is the very first thing that Matthew tells us. Just to be clear, he comes from the line of David. Now, why do we need a Messiah? It's because of David's sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, and great-great-grandsons who messed up a lot. I went back to the Old Testament and looked at the Bible's evaluations of these kings, and I'm just going to read some out to you if you can't read them on the, on the screen. Under King Rehoboam's rule, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Under King Abijah, he committed all the sins of his father. King Asa and Jehoshaphat, fortunately, did right in the eyes of, in the, eyes of the Lord. But King Jehoram, we went all the way back to doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. We had a, a, a little break with King Uzziah, who does what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then King Jotham is kind of a mixed bag. King Ahaz, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. King Manasseh did much evil. King Amon forsook the Lord. I think you're getting the impression that they had a mixed record, okay? With a few bright spots accepted, we know that this list of kings after David, they, they did not rule with justice, they disobeyed the Lord, and they were punished for it with the exile. Now, you may not be familiar with this word, that's okay. Uh, the exile happened 600 years before Jesus was born. This kingdom called Babylon invaded the land of the Jews. The army destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. They even took some of the most educated, wealthy elites of the Israelites and deported them away from their own home. The only Jews left in the land were poor and uneducated, and they had to fend for themselves. So just... Just to be clear about this, imagine if another country invaded the United States, burned the White House to the ground, bulldozed every church in the country, and took all the wealthy, all the educated, all the intellectuals, all of the, the upper classes, and deported them home, leaving all the rest of us just to fend for ourselves. And you have a taste for what it was like to be in the exile. This was a crisis. This was devastating. Everything they knew and loved and relied upon was pulled out from under them. But here's a fact about the exile that you need to know. Every Jewish prophet who talked about this coming punishment for the Israelites believed that it was not some random, unfortunate event for their people. They saw it as God's punishment of their sins. In other words, what's happening to us in the exile is our fault. God is punishing us for what we've done. All this list of bad kings, the exile, is a punishment of what they did. So imagine for a second, these names might not mean anything to you, that's okay. But imagine yourself as one of these 12 men there in the third section. We had the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We had all the list of kings. And then we have these, these guys. These guys should have been kings. Eliakim, he should have sat on a throne, but he didn't. 
Zadok should have sat on the throne, but he didn't. Nathan should have sat on the throne, but he didn't. And the reason why they didn't sit on the throne is because of their great-great-great-great-grandfathers who did injustice, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. These men had to take the royal family underground. They had to sit around and pray and wait in exile for God to restore their kingdom. And imagine this, one generation after another, each of these men come and go with no restoration, no rebuilding of the throne. They die, and the kingdom hasn't come back. Think about the despair and hopelessness that would sink in with each of these men, deeper and deeper into their souls, waiting for God to change something, and nothing happens. That makes it all the better when Jesus shows up. Jesus comes at the end of this section. So if that third section is all about the exile, then what is Jesus doing? He is bringing Israel out of exile. That's what this genealogy is saying. It started with the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It moved to kings. Then it moved to the exile. And what is Jesus starting? He's ending the exile. He's bringing his people out of exile, out of the punishment that God had for them. This is why he chooses 12 apostles and not 11 and not 13. Because each of them represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He is undoing the exile. What are his famous words when he reveals himself to the people? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. He's announcing the kingdom of David is back. We're not going to be in hiding anymore. We're not in seclusion anymore. We're back on the scene. We've returned. The king has come to sit on his throne. We're not underground anymore. This was a promise that Israel had to wait for for a thousand years. God told David a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. And he's the end of the exile. He is starting a new age. Now, since we're talking about Jesus' genealogy, his family of origin, I'm going to ask a question maybe that you haven't thought about. If Jesus was the heir to the throne of David, then what does that make of Joseph, his father? Why, we've had a recent change in a monarchy in this world. It's a pretty famous one. It's in England, okay? When Queen Elizabeth II died, her son became King Charles III, Okay? A generation before that was King George VI, and what did that make Elizabeth? That made her heir to the throne, right? So who was Joseph before Jesus showed up on the scene? He was heir to the throne. What was his occupation in life? A carpenter. Imagine knowing where you deserve to be your entire life, and what did you do for a living? You were a carpenter. Imagine what it was like for Joseph after all these years of his fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do something. And it's in his family, his line, that the kingdom is restored. We actually know from church history that Herod was not happy about 
Joseph's family. In addition to trying to kill Jesus, he even tried to burn some of their records. Um, let's bring these forward. There's a church historian that tells us that King Herod, because he was not a Jew, tried to burn all the records of Joseph's family. But a few of Joseph's family were careful, having private records for themselves. They gloried in the preservation of the memory of their birth. This is incredible. We think this genealogy is so boring. We skip past it. We think it's a snooze. But this is a politically charged document. This is a lightning rod for controversy. It's saying Jesus is the heir to the throne. He's the rightful king, not Herod, not any of that family. They don't belong on the throne, but Jesus does. This genealogy doesn't just show Jesus' family. It vindicates his father. And I also think it vindicates his mother. I don't know if you... If this verse caught you for a second, but Matthew is very intentional about what he says and does not say. He says, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary, but Mary was the mother of Jesus. Now, if you didn't know the rest of the story, that sounds pretty sketchy, doesn't it? Right? After all these lists of fathers, Joseph is not called the father of Jesus. He's called the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. That sounds like a textbook case of adultery. Y'all follow with me? Nod your heads like this if you, if you catch my drift, okay? She's the Mary of a guy. She's the mother of Jesus, and Joseph is not the father. But I love what Matthew is doing here. I think he's a genius because he mentions four other women whose stories seem a little scandalous. If you grew up in church, you may be familiar with some of these. If not, that's okay. Tamar, we know that she slept with her father-in-law, Judah. We know that Rahab was a prostitute. We know Ruth was a Moabite. They were some of the Israelites' greatest enemies. Bathsheba, she, she was married and she slept with King David. On the surface, these seem like scandalous stories, right? But when you go back and read them, you find out that they're a lot more complex than you first realized. Right? If you go back to the story of Tamar, the end of that story, her father-in-law Judah says, she is more righteous than me. In uh, Rahab's story, Yes, she's a prostitute, but she saves the Jewish spies. God saves Rahab and all of her family, and she joins the Israelites. You look at Ruth's story. She's depicted as upstanding, and an, and an Israelite, righteous Israelite man, Boaz, works so hard to marry her. You go back to Bathsheba's story, you realize she's not seducing anybody. She is taken advantage of by a powerful king. Why does Matthew include all these stories? Because what seems like a scandal on the surface is a lot more complex when you actually go back and read it. God vindicates all five of these women. So when you read that sentence about Mary, you think, well, maybe she slept with someone else instead of her husband, Joseph. But that's not what happened. If you read, if you continue to read, and continue to look at her story, you realize, no, 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 this wasn't adultery. She is pregnant due to divine intervention. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what I love about this genealogy. It vindicates the entire family. 
Jesus really is the son of David. He really is the fulfillment of that promise. He's got all that it takes to be the Messiah. And his father, who patiently waited like all of his fathers before him, is being vindicated because his family is going to raise up the king. And his mother, whose story seems very scandalous at first glance, is not at all. I just, love, I just love that this genealogy is here. There are so many of us who want to go back and research our family history. Anybody in this room go back and do some of those genetic tests, 23andMe, or you go back and look at the uh, tombstones, you want to know where your family comes from, right? We care about that because it's our family, right? My, uh, my mom never wants to look and do any of those records. She, she doesn't want any skeleton to come out of any closet, okay? <laughs> We're interested in these family histories because it's our family. But this family history shows us the holiness of this family. Jesus really is the son of David. He really is the long-awaited Messiah. His father Joseph really was in line for the throne. His mother Mary really was a virgin who conceived by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And we learn so much about Jesus if we just take the time to read this genealogy. Right? He's the beginning of a new Genesis, a new chapter, a new beginning for the story of Israel. He is the long-awaited, long-expected Messiah. He is the anointed one. He comes to end the exile and gather Israel around himself. He is truly from David's lineage and he is truly adopted by the heir to the throne. This is who he is. And y'all, he hasn't said a word. He hasn't performed a miracle yet. He hasn't preached the Sermon on the Mount. But we know who he is because of this genealogy. Now, because I can't help myself, I'm going to ask one last question. Have you ever wondered why Jesus waited so long to reveal his identity as the Messiah? I mean, 30 years, right? He was born... And he doesn't reveal himself at age 18, not at 20, not at 25. He waits 30 years. Why does he do that? <coughs> well, remember who his dad is. His dad is the heir to the throne. And when you actually look in the Gospels, after Jesus is baptized, you never see a hint of evidence that Joseph is still alive. Could it be the case that Jesus waited for his father to die in order to announce his kingdom? The rightful heir to the throne is buried in the ground, and so Jesus knows now it's the appropriate time to reveal who I am. Instead of usurping his father, he patiently waited for his beloved dad to die and then announces his kingdom. Is that amazing? After all of this buildup, after all of this waiting after centuries of being this underground royal family, after all this painful oppression from foreign enemies, Jesus waits 30 more years, and you're thinking, what are you doing? Show yourself. Reveal yourself. Tell people that you're the Messiah. But he waits, and he's patient, because he knows just the right time to come onto the scene. This is why I love, I've always wondered about what this verse means when Paul says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. And you're thinking, Paul, what does that mean? When the set time had fully come? I think he's telling us that God came at just the right time. We needed preparation. We needed this groundwork to be laid ahead of time. And we wish God would act quickly. Hurry up already, Lord. We need you to act now. 
But God is telling us that Jesus came at just the right time. Right in their most desperate need, right at the pit of the exile, God came into the world fulfilling all of his promises that he said beforehand. He entered the story when the set time had fully come. This is who our God is. This is who Jesus is. And he hasn't said a word, hasn't performed a miracle, or preached a sermon. That is how amazing Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to explore your word. It's amazing that just a list of names can tell us so much about Christ, our Savior. He really did come from the line of David. He really was the fulfillment of the promise to David. He really was different than all the other kings of David. He never did evil in your eyes. He always did what was right and just. He even came at the right time. Father, we're amazed at who he is. He is the Christ, the anointed one, our king who brings an end to the exile. Father, we pray for a deeper knowledge of him. We don't want just, just know information about him. We want to know him personally. We want to know him intimately. Father, help us to have a deeper knowledge, a deeper relationship with Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.